Um, welcome to the Status Quo Conversations. My name is Sinesi Pumaninja, and today we're going to be doing something slightly different in that we will be talking to a man, our first ever male, ever, 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 ever. Ooh, ever. Sorry, yes. <laughs> so I allow the gentleman to introduce himself. No, uh, thank you for having me, Sinesipo. Um, my name is Melvin Dubega. Um, I am a man, as I've been uh, adequately categorized. Uh, but yeah, just a young African entrepreneur passionate about solving significant problems with technology. Thank you so much for such a brief entrepreneur, entrepreneur bio description. I think this is the shortest description I've seen in a long time, considering the <laughs> list of things you've done. Like this is like such a summary. So the reason why we have Melvin today is he is our first unicorn in the African continent. I think you're the first African unicorn. I think you're the first African unicorn. Yes. Um, yeah. First African unicorn. For those of you who don't know what a unicorn is, a unicorn is a startup that is valued in excess of over a billion US dollars. For those of you who are in South Southie, that's 14 billion and something million rand. So <laughs> 14, somewhere around there. So it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. So how did you become, how does it feel to become a, uni, to be a unicorn? How does it feel? <laughs> well, you know, look it's, a, look, it's a big number. And I think ultimately it comes with a big responsibility. But I think when we reflect on it from a team perspective, it's validation of the opportunity and the impact that we're trying to achieve um, in, in, in the space that we're in and just for everyone's context to the business that we run is one called Go One. And effectively it's um, a today one of the world's largest online corporate training libraries but essentially what we do is we aggregate training from some of the best providers in the world um harvard edx blinkers thomson reuters um and bring them into one subscription so similar to like a netflix but for professional learning and so i think the opportunity to have an impact in that space is a multi-billion dollar one and a global opportunity and so um it just speaks to the to, to the fact that look it's a long way to go on the journey but it's a good validation of the work the team have been doing ever since. Mm, that's actually very, 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 that's nice summary. Nice summary. How did it start? Like, I think I first heard of Go One a couple of years ago when you were still in school. So how did it start? You know, I remember the first time I posted about it was when you're trying to raise money. So it was like a 15,000 pound competition when we were, so I did my master's in the UK. And so Ox was running this competition and I was trying to get guys to vote for me. Unfortunately, we lost that competition, which is quite a sad thing. But um, in the end, so then we had a platform called Aduro, which means Spark in Latin. So that was the first name we had for our platform because we were like all nerded out and thought it would be like a Spark, Brighter Learning, and Latin was one of the cool languages at the time. Um, but definitely, I think the, the nexus ultimately comes from the different experiences of us as a founding team and our exposure to this learning space. Um, and so, you know, for example, Andrew, um, he's, he's his longtime partner and now wife was a teacher and he and uh, he and, 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 and some of our other co-founders at a web development company um, where they were building websites for, for organizations and, and, and they were seeing increasing learning needs and were thinking about the learning space. Um, from my vantage point, it was more so from my experience of working with, um, I guess, both small organizations, um, investing in them and trying to understand um, when they stated that their biggest problem was finding the right people, yet they never had the systems in place to invest in them. 
um, to make the people more competent. And then when I worked in the, I guess, management consulting space, what you found is that very large organizations, um, having worked in across probably 10 countries at the time, you found that very large organizations, many of the problems were brought on to solve as management consultants were often a result or could have been addressed rather by better human capital investment. Yet when one looked at the tools they were using, you'd often realize that they left much to be desired. And so it was interesting where the small guys said they couldn't afford it. The big guys, all the money weren't getting it right. And so when I was fortunate to get the scholarship to Oxford, um, spent my second master's focusing on technology with a focus on uh, learning technologies. And so it was there where the meeting of minds took place um, and we kicked off the business in 2015. Mm. Oh, it's, it's amazing your story in terms of like how you guys found each other. Um, I think when I chat to a lot of entrepreneurs, but their biggest challenge is finding a co-founder. How do you think you guys got it right? Yeah, look, I mean, so it's, you know, I always say like in life one, you know, rather 50% of something, 100% of nothing. And so I think in a journey, if you think someone can help you get further and, you know, also being an entrepreneur is a lonely journey. I think, you know, the days when, you know, I may feel like, you know, because back then, you know, all of us as on the founding team are fairly young, you know, you know, you could always like, look, things got pear-shaped, you go back to your mother's house and be like, mom, I tried. But I think, you know, when you have your down days, your co-founders have your up days and you balance each other in terms of skill set. Um, and so from that perspective, it really was aligning around the, the vision for what you want to build. Because, I mean, the path of getting there is, 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 I mean, we've taken many turns and changes and even mini pivots in what we're trying to achieve. But ultimately, what kept us to get to where we are today was the focus on what is our ultimate vision and mission. And so for us, it always like, look, we want to unlock a positive potential of people through a love for learning. Um, and so there are many ways one could do that. I mean, by no means is the platform we have today the only way of doing that, but it's about saying what tool gets you the best way of getting there. And so from finding co-founders, obviously, you know, people often ask me, Marvin, you know, many of your businesses, all your partners are, are guys, as an example. And it's not even the fact that I have anything against, you know, against like, you know, women. It's just because, you know, when you're chatting to, to your friends and, you know, maybe I'm introverted from that perspective. And so you're talking to the guys, sharing ideas, what you want to do. And that's what you naturally um, have, have, have affinity towards. And so with Andrew, it was more so, again, just a friendship um, at the time because we're chatting about his development business and thinking through about next steps there. And in the end, look, I advised him to sell the business and we, we then doubled down and focused on what I guess became Go One today. Um, but it was more so organic. And I think ultimately you never know where you're going to find your, your co-founder. And that's why I often believe in that process. It's so important to share your idea, share your vision, share what you're working on. I think there's this culture we often find where some people will be like, look, I don't want to share my idea because someone's going to steal it or they must sign an NDA or all that good stuff. I mean, if you speak to some of the biggest investors in the world, in the tech space at least, unless you're doing some really deep, like hard tech, which is you can actually put IP on that, which is very few businesses out there, even very few startups in the tech space, NDAs won't get you any far. It won't get you anywhere. Because in the same vein, I mean, like you could technically rebuild Uber today with probably five developers in Cape Town in two weeks. No, no, maybe a bit longer now, let's say. But actually, you can plug in many APIs, maybe let's say a month. But the reality is Uber's value comes from the execution, the ecosystem that's built up. That's why there are many Uber copycats, but they don't get the valuation of Uber. And so I think it's important to realize what is your secret source and often it's execution over the idea. I love how you say execution. Um, I love how you say execution because um, one of the things that I've realized, I think, in developing entrepreneurship journey was that my strength is not ideation. Some of us, we're executing. <laughs> Tell me what you need to be done, how you yeah. need to be done. Done. I'll do it. <laughs> no, execution, like Malcolm Gladwell always says, practice and execution beats talent, beats ideation, 
every single day of the week. It is not even, um, it is not even um, um, a competition. Like it's not even the same. So I always make the example between Apple Music and Spotify. Yeah. Apple has the ecosystem, but Spotify has the better user experience. By far. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not even a, it's not even a, it's, it's really not even a competition. No, I'm expressed. I'm impressed with their programming, they, that AI that they're using on us. It's, 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 and I think it's one of those things where you, people need to accept sometimes execution. And that is why they're the better app. Better app. I think it's important to think on that. I mean, even beyond execution, it's about focus, right? Because the rate is in the Apple ecosystem. There's so much, you know, because remember Apple had like, they had the iStore, they had so many, had so many different variations of that focus in terms of the music space. Where Spotify began, music subscription, pure focus. And remember, like these guys were clinically focused, you know, from Sweden, like on this particular use case and pain point. And so I think this is where I think in building any business, but I think most of startups, just the importance of focus. I mean, if you read some of the greats and listen to their stories and even interviews, even like Elon Musk, I mean, his first business, which he said, I think he sold for 200 million even before he joined the guys at, you know, PayPal and stuff, um, was again, he was like, look, there are bigger companies in this space but he just out-executed them because he put in more hours and he clearly focused on it because whilst the exec was focusing on politics and sometimes focusing on market expansion and managing investors, if you're able to focus on your key business, your key use cases, you outperform. Mm, quite interesting. Quick one, since you did bring it up. Why no female founders? Oh, what do you know? Like it's almost like saying, why no, 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 no I'm, I'm actually asking you from a genuine perspective because Part of the reasons why women are only getting 1.7% of all venture capital funding is because they're not seen. They're not seen because they don't pitch. They don't pitch because of all the co-founders are men. So curious why. Just curious. Oh, why. But look, but look, I mean, like there's, there's no one ever, I don't think no one ever stopped a woman from making. It's the same way, like, why is the founder of Bumble, why isn't there a guy founder there? I mean, like, I think gender... Uh, to the point, she I think. Tinder, by the I way, think, she left Tinder by the way and sued them for sexual harassment. But okay, sidebar, sidebar. But I think ultimately, I think, like I mentioned, to the point around founders, I think, you know, often, and look, I, I, I'm not built enough businesses to have a systematic review on the outcomes on this, but I think from ultimately, the people who I share most of my ideas with or like who I connect with on a business level have been guys. And I think it's a bias maybe of going, you know, how I grew up and also look, I'm, I'm, uh, maybe my proclivities towards having friends who are guys. And so from that perspective, it's not like why no female companies, like almost why no Chinese founders or why no like, so from that perspective, it's not as if there was any particular mm. bias in that particular way. It's how things came together and how the partners formed the business. It's the same way where I'm asking like, why is this only a female podcast? Why isn't there a male co-host? Quite simple. Um, females don't make up the majority of podcasts in terms of usage, Apple, Spotify. It just happens to be, there's a statistics around it. There's an actual bias around it. So when I used to work at NEF, so I actually know that there's an actual reason. <laughs> I know the actual reason. I'm annoying because I always know this. Um, so um, when, when, when I used to work at the National Empowerment Fund and I had one a startup radio station as one of my clients and they spoke about in terms of why um, radio is dominated by men and mm -hmm. why the podcast space so this was before podcasting became a thing and why yeah. it, it it follows the same um it follows the same loop and same same theory is that mm -hmm. uh from a voicing perspective most people find the woman voice actually irritating 
and yeah, irritating. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, there's something about it. So it, it falls into the our own internalized uh, misogyny and uh, general patriarchy reasons why people actually don't enjoy the voice of a woman. That is why even in the South African uh, podcast space, it's still dominated by men. So that is one of the reasons why it is a female is to, in order to change that demographic side. Well, it's an interesting one, I mean, but like having a male voice doesn't necessarily take away from the effectiveness of the narrative, right? I mean, like, uh, it's something which I reflect on in terms of like, so yes, I agree with you and the top audience can be female, you can have female guests, but nothing stops having a male perspective on the show. Um, but I mean, I hear you, I hear the stats. Yeah, statistically, um, it's statistically and um, sidebar, it's also quite funny. So radio stations which have implemented females um, first thing in the morning, that's why they have a lot of male voice to balance it out. You'll see it. And 947 does the same thing. Um, and basically the only morning one, yeah, yeah, it's 947. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons why they have to balance out the voice. It is apparently there's something that happens. Um, again, internalized bias may play a part because you <laughs> It's one of those things, but there's an actual theory. People have actually done research work into it because they couldn't understand why the why. Anyway, while we're talking about the why, why combinate (laughs) (laughs) while we're on the why, while we're on the why. So why combinate for those of gain who don't know, if you're a startup and you've just started your business, you want to be on why combinator. Y Combinator is an accelerator, accelerator, incubator, funder. Basically, I think for me, new startups, the best way I can describe Y Combinator is a validation of your concept. That is how I found it. So that's I I actually, that's what I view them as a validation that there is potential to your idea. So how did Y Combinator get there? How did you get in though? All the way from Southie. (laughs) <laughs> so the interesting thing is, right, so why combinator, I think, and so the good thing here is that there's even less about your idea. And, you know, it's a small fact, but like the greatest source of early employees for why combinator businesses is other why combinator founders, because the reality is also some businesses fail. But I think what why combinator does very well is it backs the entrepreneurs and the founders, the individuals, right? It's about, you know, having that grit, that deep understanding, the passion. And so it's really interesting where they, yes, they will, ultimately they want to back a business that's going to succeed, but ultimately they're backing you as a founder um, in through the business. And so I think for us, Welcome is an interesting one where we knew that we wanted to be, we knew that the opportunity was a global one. And we knew that like, look, we want to be an international tech company, having some form of US presence or like, you know, Silicon Valley exposure would be valuable. And so we thought of Y Combinator as a nice entry point into that given the community that that i mean as you know like you know airbnb dropbox stripe i mean like there's something like benjamin graham like i remember like um program like there's only like big people from the space that have come through and so that ecosystem was important for us from a community perspective i mean look we were we were like we were a bit late in application to, towards the end just because we were uncertain and like at that point in time all of us were all over the place um but i think definitely experience in my combinator was one where i think it's really effective because it is, it's weird because, you know, you go into Y Combinator, the actual program itself, obviously it's a lifetime community, but like you go into the three month experience, which is like an incubator type thing. And you, it's almost like you can get as much from it as you want, because ultimately after the three months, there's a thing called demo day. And essentially demo day is where, you know, two and a half minutes, you go on stage and you almost pitch to the, to the, to the, to the some of the top investors in the world. And if they like what you're saying and your traction to date, they, they'll, they'll then obviously offer you a term sheet. And so it's almost an artificial deadline to some extent. Um, because 
Like it, it is what it is. And so therefore, like just having a game, being able to book office hours, being able to speak to guys and get advice from people who've been in the game, who have exited multiple businesses. I think for me is that because look in business and in life, I'm always a strong believer of making mistakes. I just believe in making new mistakes. And so if you can learn from somebody else's past mistakes, I think you're going to win. And I think that's where that explosion, that community, and also the realization that, look, the guy sitting next to you has built a big business. Like, these are, these are, makes it more realistic. And I think, you know, you ask about the point, you know, like the significance of even just our current valuation level reached in the master in the business. It's showing that it can be done. And I think that's often the biggest thing which one takes for granted, right? It used to be like, oh, yeah, but that was Bill Gates or that was Zuckerberg or that was Elon because he went to the US or whatever. But I think it's that concept of like, look, you know, you discount that people are out there who are just like you, um, who are focused on their businesses and actually building really sizable businesses. And I think the Y Combinator experience um, ingrains that, whilst in the same way being able to tap into that network of fellow founders, but also, you know, people who have been there and done that. And so it was a great experience for us just to, I think, you know, think about some of the key things that happened in our business during that time. So, um, so Andrew was more product and I looked after all our sales, go to market, that kind of stuff, more business development. And so I think then we had a target that the partner set for us, I think, to grow 30% month on month, which we fortunately uh, exceeded during the time. But I think just like being able to think through our sales process and like, you know, as an actuary, I mean, you know, I wasn't necessarily, uh, I'm not the, the, I wouldn't say I'm the best sales guy, sales guy out there, but I think definitely being able to, to hone the craft and also importantly, understand our value proposition. So I think with many startups and entrepreneurs early on, I think your first customers, it's very hard to say you've got product market fit or actually been able to articulate your value proposition because the reality is the first few customers are buying it because the salesperson sold it. And I'm looking at our first few customers, but look at six customers, they bought us for six different reasons. So what kind of use case do you think of scaling when it comes down to go to market? And it's just thinking through those things in a methodical way and even just thinking through how to position our business. I mean, when we entered Y Combinator, as I mentioned to you, our platform was called Aduro. And just through their advice and thinking through, you know, we know what makes sense. You know, we ended up landing on Go One because we had to own our.com domain and all those important things about which one would take for granted, but someone has been there and done that to be like, look, hey, you want to be an international company, get your.com domain now. Um, and so it's like those small things which I think definitely on our journey um helped us think through how we build the business. Definitely. I I think that's actually quite I think it's actually quite amazing. Um I've read up a lot about Y Combinator and 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 in terms of the things that they do, which I think is phenomenal. I just think that I agree. I think you learn more from the people. Like you have to be a sponge. Like sponge, sponge. I think it's more of a the people, the connections you make. What do you think? So that was in 2015, 2015. What do you think? So just take me through the journey as a year. So you finish Y Combinator, you get a little bit of validation, you start growing, you, you've, you get the .com, you change names. What's sort of the next step as you were thinking? Because you've just finished your master's. Did you be like, let me just give it a go? Funny thing is, I think, so Andrew and I were both busy writing our thesis. So we used to procrastinate from our dissertations, calling clients at the time. So there was a bit of a cheeky overlap there. Actually, I think actually we had our, we actually submitted our dissertations and our final when actually I think it was like probably I think it was probably two weeks before demo day actually the end of Y Combinator we actually submitted and we had like a mini mini celebration in our in our you know in our kitchen office um, but like I think looking at the uh, I think the step from there for us it was always about scale and growth I think because the reality is what you realize depending on the kind of business you are you have different types of key metrics right so for example if you are a 
social networking platform, the key metric for you may be daily active users, for example. Um, if you are a B, if you're an e-commerce company, it may be the average basket size or whatever it may be. And same way for us as a B2B SaaS company, so software as a service company, where our key metrics are on recurring revenue and the growth thereof, it's about thinking through our annual recurring revenue and how do we grow that. But also in the same vein, you know, focus on growing the product. I mean, you know, like I remember early days. So when you do Y Combinator, typically there's a article that goes out during the Y Combinator period on your company, like saying, hey, this company made it into my combinator. No, 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 no. Remember the article went out and there was like inbound influx of leads. I remember just like manually spinning up instances for different clients and different leads. And I felt like, you know, the amount of leads I must have burned back then, just because our platform was still buggy, you know, you're just trying, trying to put things together. So there's lots of work we had to do on the products to be honest as well at that point in time. And I think price continually evolving and growing. But I just think it's always that focus on being very clear on what a success looked like for that phase of growth and solving for that. Um, because yes, same way, like you know, if you read like Jeff Bezos, everything store, like he knew he wanted to build what Amazon is today in terms of doing everything, but he had to begin with books for very particular reasons and get that right. And so in any business about being very clear on, yes, you have the lofty goals of being the Uber for this or the that for that, but ultimately you have to say, what is that next milestone or hurdle in your growth? And so for us, it was really just doubling down on both the product and the scale of the, of, of our sales funnel. You're reminding me of an app that I'm waiting for right now. That is breaking my heart, you know, grocery food delivery, your yes. opinion. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I don't want to hate on other startup founders. It's an amazing product execution, execution, all of them. I can't even tell them which one is better. I can tell you all of them, all of them. not one works, not one works, yeah. but eventually one will work and we will be, we'll be at us. So you submitted your thesis and you started getting to sales leads and what was sort of the evolution? Because I think I remember at some point you were not even based in South Africa around those years. Yeah, look, I mean, it's obviously off the, off the back of our studies was in the UK and was, I guess, you know, for in the early days of Go One, you know, I guess head office, all of us were based on planes, to be honest. We were flying a lot. And it's something which I reflected on the other day where because the rest of my, like, on the founding team or leadership are based in Australia. So whenever they used to fly, they would fly further than everyone else because like obviously they fly from Australia. What well, that meant over the last six years is that all these guys are all like platinum, double platinum on their miles. But because I was too central, I wasn't getting as many miles as they were. But I mean, to your question though, early on, all of us were like, it was we were virtually based on planes, I think, you know, and building up the team, you know, building up the team in Australia, building up our sales team in the US because initially I wanted to ramp up the sales team there. We didn't, we've never had developers per se in the US just because it's fairly costly and like our our technical, so one of our co-founders, uh, Chris Hood, um, he was based in Australia and so wanted more developers in his time zone as well. And so just the different go-to-market and even the back-end offices that were built, like product offices are building out. And so that was the, the key focus there. But I think definitely for us, it's always been like saying, where best do we spend, I guess, our time, but also the next dollar or rand that we have. And I think that's something which remains true even when we're thinking through now. So after a recent raise, whatever, raising $200 million, like just thinking through how best one allocates that capital is the exact same diligence one applies then. So, you know, you're testing different sales funnels because the thing is, and now we're going to like the esoteric natures of sales here and like startup as growth, but the reality is you can easily go hire a salesperson. I mean, like sales guys, Look, they can sell, right? So the right is you go spend lots of money on a senior sales guy who's earning the most of anybody in the company. And obviously because they can sell, they can be like, oh no, this deal slipped and they can sell themselves. And so you end up like burning lots of money before you realize the guy's actually a dud. 
or and or the guy or the girls are that. And so from that perspective, it's almost like yes, you can leverage someone's network. Like for example, if I said, look, Sinasipo, I want I want you to head up this VC fund because it's all so well networked in the ecosystem, you could probably tap your networks and do fairly well in terms of getting like you know opportunities, entrepreneurs, investors, and so forth. But the reality is, how do I then take that if I want to start up a fund that's focusing on Kenya as an example? And it's often you find that you want to your success of your company shouldn't be tied to the networks of your people. And so it came to me, say, how do you build a predictable and scalable sales funnel? And so that's more difficult because you're forced to take a step back and then make it person agnostic. And it's about process. And it's about building up those sorts of things, even across the business, when you think about like a product development and having sprints and that kind of stuff. Because what you realized was you never want to have dependencies in the business on key people. Because otherwise you become that, you know, that 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 person who like doesn't want to relinquish roles and responsibilities in the business because you're tied to a particular process. And I think for us as founders, even over the years, it's been important for us to make sure that we're continually growing. And I mean, obviously, you know, having grown quite significantly, I'd say probably once every 18 months, we're doing like a reorg or like trying to make sure we're all positioned. You know, do we have local teams? Do we have global centralized teams? Do we have like just to make sure that we are accommodating growth that we're having? And so we've been through many of those cycles, but it always comes down to saying, how can you ensure one that as a manager or leader, you aren't the barrier or the retardant to growth in your business? Because Obviously, you can't expect your business to grow exponentially if you're growing linearly, because then you're the one that's actually impeding the growth. And so it's making sure you're continually learning and investing in yourself and also empowering people around you to do other things. And so it's been something which I think we've done fairly well in our journey to ensure that, like, look, we're able to bring in the right people at the right time and create the time for them to grow and scale the business along with us. Hmm. So, yeah, that's actually quite interesting. I love how you say that eh, not linear, exponential. I actually like that part quite Quite, quite a lot. Um, how do you think, if you look at you know where you are now, six years later versus then, how did you approach hiring? Did you approach it in that way or were there any mistakes in the getting people? Because you know, recruitment is hard, guys. Recruitment, recruitment will humble you, humble you, humble. No, it's tough. I mean, like, look, no, 100%, it's not easy. I mean, like, you know, and also to the point, I mean, when you're hiring, so, you know, since we're part of the Alan Gray community, and I remember attending Alan Gray's funeral in Bermuda and meeting all the execs and all the, the founders and the, like the senior guys there. And many of them were like friends of cousins of, or like, you know, because literally when Alan Gray was building his business, it was globally scaling. The people he knew were the people who he'd interacted with. And so you typically find as often your early employees are like family members, friends, someone's friends, friends. So that's what, that's what you know, right? Like you aren't going to like pay search agency fees and you don't, you really work or won't trust. And so I think something for us, I think often it's been building about like one, obviously being with family and friends. And I mean, I mean, there's a time when we had like a good number of our classmates and employees in the business. And, and just because that was a point of reference, or were like family members. But I think ultimately as you've grown and scaled, it's been about saying, you know, if we have a good person, I think uh, it's not even about like education. It's about more attitude. You know, are they, are they have the attitude to learn? And, and, and then from there you can work with everything else. And so I think about, I don't know, some of our, my, my, my top employee in South Africa, um, again, you know, phenomenally smart individual. Um, and just in terms of just being someone who didn't necessarily come from a tech background, didn't necessarily finish the, like didn't have a university degree, but just the ability to catch, learn, grow. And I think, you know, probably one of the shops we have in the business today. And so to your question, when it comes to hiring people often, and look, we made many mistakes. I mean, like I'd be lying to you otherwise, I think for me, particularly in the go to market business development sales side of things, yes, you know, you know, grew the business, you know, more than 20% month on month for a couple of years, whatever, all that 
that good stuff on the top line. But the what benefit I think, and so I had it easy against my product, my 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 product guys was in sales in some of the client facing areas. You can you can measure performance because the numbers are the numbers are you either bringing in the sales, you either retaining the clients, or like it's for me it's black and white. And everyone can sell it, and you also want to understand. Look, you're scaling a product, but I think it's also I'm a firm believer that if someone in my team reports into me doesn't perform well, it's on me because I assume that I hired well and there was a hiring process, and so therefore I'm not enabling you to succeed in the organization. And so for me, that's why I'm, my I exist in the organization to clear blockers and enable the guys reporting to me to succeed. If I do that, then I've achieved my objective. And so it comes to hiring. Yes, you make mistakes, but as we've gone over time, it's just been thinking through how do we, you know, how do we hire? How do we see culture? And depending on the roles you have, what kind of, you know, tests are you doing? What kind of things are you checking? But that being said, the best source of our best employees have been our best employees. Because if you're like, look, who's someone in your space who you who you back, who you trust, or who you look, the person you think like, this guy's actually my idol or whatever, who I look up to, and then trying to also chase the best talent. Because I think in businesses, it's very easy where people, maybe through ego or fear, who knows, often reluctant to bring in people smarter than themselves um, just because there's a risk of, you know, maybe someone being shown up or being better than them and that kind of stuff. And I think one benefit, I think if you are growing as a business, there's so much room for growth. I mean, like there's like some other opportunities. I mean, like I think about some of like, I mean, our early, our early, like, our, I mean, like I literally, our, our early, our early, like sales, sales assistant going through the process and, you know, becoming an account executive and then moving across to becoming a VP of sales and like just the evolution of people. So I think there's so much scope to grow that you can't come with that, you know, mindset of their politics and trying to keep things tight. I think that's where culture is so important because you can create a very toxic culture where it is about politicking and that kind of stuff. And it's something which we actively nip in the bud, but it starts with one, the culture you create, but also the culture you maintain by who, who you bring into the business as employees, but also in the same vein, how do you um, almost harbor that culture on the day-to-day interactions? Like, you know, there's small things that we do, um, like as you know, which I guess have now become traditions over time, um, which again is about bringing that culture because the big challenge for us is having teams around the world is even before COVID working remotely is then saying, you know, how do you have that one culture that is a healthy culture? Mm, no, uh, culture is actually quite important. How would you describe Go One culture? Healthy, like vexed. Like, <laughs> Shame you guys have got the vaccine. Yo, I um, want that thing. I uh, want that thing. Like, like, no, like, I think, look, definitely healthy. I mean, I, I think it's one which is continually evolving, growing, but I mean, so healthy and so strong. I mean, like, and it's crazy because think of the last two years, the number of people we've hired in the business, which many of us as founders have never like met in person um, because we have country managers and that kind of stuff. But the culture, just because when they come to a place and they see this is a culture and everyone's like excited to learn and to grow and like, you know, it's fun, loving, you can be vulnerable. And if you have a good idea, it will be heard and it'll be taken forward. I mean, there's so much which, and you know, I wish I could say it was, you know, us as a founding team that created, that, that was drove all of it. But the reality was, again, about us having the right values and nuggets in place and allowing people to actually add their own piece to that culture. Um, but also that being said, I mean, look, I think early on in our journey, I mean, so at some point um, so that we used to have from a software de- like development teams, let's say the US or Australia and Vietnam early on. Um, and we still have significant teams in both those countries. And I remember like, there was something which we noted very early, like it was slight where like, you know, when there was like, 
a bad piece of code and one of the junior developers was in Australia would say, oh no, that was done by a Vietnamese developer. Um, and you know, and, and, and it's all, all, all one company. I think just the importance of when we saw those things, it was, it was look, well, actually no one said crisis was all hands on deck and thinking through how do we as leadership in the business actually nip that, that, that from festering in the business. And so we put very certain initiatives in play, like where, you know, you joined the business, you actually spent three months in different office before you actually went back to your home office. So you knew someone on the other side or like just exchange programs or how we did our like all hands meetings and so small things which have paid us significant dividends now where i mean one culture guys will take the hill and i think it's something which matures over time but i don't think by any means is our culture reached its end point but i think it's healthy and and definitely well positioned for the next phase of our growth mm. no that's quite interesting so now we're going to switch focus you did mention that you're an investor how is it being an investor versus actually being the entrepreneur? How have you managed to have those two different hats on? Hmm. You know, but I think it's so funny enough, you know, I say the, the best, the best investors are entrepreneurs and the best entrepreneurs are investors. Um, because the reality is it's a question I mentioned earlier around, you know, if I'm thinking about a sales, sales funnel as an example, right. Or thinking about how I want to get sales. Like I have to try to choose what I'm going to, invest in content marketing, whether I'm going to spend money on SEO, whether I'm going to go spend money on billboards or whatever, right? But ultimately, to me, me determining which one of those channels will give me the highest return on investment. And investment could also be money, but also people's time or resourcing. And so for me, that skill set, I think, regardless of where you sit, is valuable. I think if you think about, I guess, the investor hat that I wear, um, I think the benefit of being an entrepreneur is that you understand the, what the founders and entrepreneurs that you're backing are going through. And I think it's something which I didn't appreciate, you know, when I was investing without necessarily having the context of, you know, what it takes to build a business. And for me, like my mantra in life is simple, where I want to build businesses whose ideas are so exciting, they keep me up at night, but I want to partner and invest in and advise businesses I wish I started because of how good the teams are and how compelling the opportunities that they're pursuing. And so for me, um, it's those two things that, that necessarily keep me honest, but I think the investor mindset and entrepreneurship mindset somewhat go hand in hand. Um, but also in the same vein, I think as you know, the difference in investor and entrepreneur is the levers you have at your disposal to bring about at your disposal to bring about change. So one thing which I am uh, which in my advisory days as a personal consultant was, you know, you could advise the businesses, you got very invested in the businesses and the success of the organization, but you never had skin in the game in terms of the success of the, what you were doing, delivering, right? So I think being an investor entrepreneur, you're very well aligned. And so for me, it's just about saying, how do I leverage the standpoint I'm on to, to allow me to that? Because I find through investing, I'm able to better leverage at scale um, my experience or my networks um, or, my, or, or my understanding of business. And so from that perspective, it does allow me to, to, to do that. Um, but I would argue that to the point that, look, the best investors are entrepreneurial and how they approach it. I think the best entrepreneurs are, are investors at their heart. Mm, no, very interesting. Can you tell us um, just in one circumstance, um, you don't have to give the names because, you know, people are private these days. Where do you think you've lost the most money, whether it be an opportunity or it just didn't work out? You know, it's, you know, the funny thing is like, so I'd say Bitcoin, you know, because, as not because, I'm invested in Bitcoin. It's actually the opportunity cost where, you know, it's twofold. So I've got like developers of mine who are like going deep in Bitcoin, like 
when we started the business. And these guys were like, they were like, Malvin, check it out. And I was like, nah, guys, you know, now you're thinking about startup things, you're right about the lights staying on. And guys are saying, look, we're investing our, our savings in Bitcoin. And I have no doubt some of my developers are doing uh, doing very well for themselves right now from the investments many years ago. And even like some of my, my friends I've worked with now, we're in that in that space locally where they'd be like, Malvin, you know, must get in. I mean, and like, I mean, literally, guys miss maybe some of them like Malvin, if you invested on the day that I told you to invest, you'd be up 300 percent today. Like, and so for me, it's something where again, the reason I didn't invest that early, again, was for me from a point of understanding the ebbs and flows, because I, I guess maybe I, from an investment perspective, I want to invest and not speculate. And so for me, it's about saying, like, look, to understand the drivers of value, what, what supply and demand is, what's going to be the key catalyst for the growth in this particular thing. And so, uh, yes, I mean, look at that. And I mean, everyone has a story, same way like in the Valley, if you ask anyone about like, everyone has opportunity or a story of when they missed Uber or they missed Facebook or they missed investing in Instagram. And so that's probably, 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 probably my story from, from that perspective. And I think, you know, it also comes down to, perspective of time right because if, if i think about let's say finishing up at oxford i just had i was at boston consulting group before management consulting had job offers to join um you know private equity in london um private equity in south africa um hedge fund in the us uh, management consulting anywhere in the world investment bank in london like they were i think they had the real office i was considering and the question was you know before going those to then say, look, I'm going to go start this business. And I, I remember like, I was in a conversation of a coffee, one of the, actually I talked to one of the guys, uh, one of the founding team. And I was saying like, look, you know, if I took this job at BCG, then I think post, you know, post whatever my time at Oxford, um, you know, my annual salary would have been three times our revenue at the time at Go One. I was like, guys, maybe I should just take this job. And then, you know, I give a half money to Go One. I'm actually better off than where we are now. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, it's easy at that point in time to say like, oh yeah, obvious trade, take the professional route and, you know, go to re- become a partner in a firm or whatever. But I think in hindsight, maybe where we are now, go, go on standpoint, you've created lots of value. And so therefore one would look back and be like, no, I didn't lose money then. I think life is long. And I'm sure even some of my early Bitcoin investors are feeling the bleed right now. But um, I think it's the function of at what point in time do you look back and have the regrets? But I think for me, definitely in my journey, I could never have predicted where I am today. I mean, even though I like to plan and think through things, I think often I almost under underestimated where I would be today. And I think it's just about the function of continually showing up every single day and knowing that, look, things won't always go your way. But if you continue to show up that even if you make, and for me, to the point you asked around, you know, we've lost money in decision-making. I'm a big believer in high quality decision-making and high quality decision-making is important to that. Look, because with information I had at the time and the processing power that I had at the time from terms of thinking through things, I would not have made a different decision on Bitcoin. And like, so it's like, and that's, that's the matter, right? And so, uh, in the same vein, like, you know, it came to like, you think about like businesses or other opportunities I've looked at or startups I've invested in, like with the information I had at the time and the process, because yes, in hindsight, I can get more information, but I can't fault myself for that decision because at that point in time, I did not know that I didn't have that information or I couldn't have actually completed it to the point where I would have been able to make a sense that that was a good investment or thing to do. And so I think for me, as long as I'm continually improving my decision-making ability, I think I'll continually um, ultimately, you know, do better professionally, but also ultimately, you know, make better decisions in the longer term. I love that word, high quality decision making. Uh, I also didn't invest in Bitcoin. I had FOMO and then I thought about it. I, if I don't understand something, I cannot put money. I, I am not a speculative investor. I'm not a speculative in anything. I, I'm a believer. I, <laughs> like, I'm a believer. If I don't understand the fundamentals driving value, if I don't understand the curve, walk away. It's literally, it's, it's, I, 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 
I'm an accountant. I'm a fundamentalist. There was actually a description of different people. And I was like, I'm an actual, I'm a core fundamentalist. If I don't understand what's driving value, what's driving growth, what are the underlying, if I don't have a complete utter understanding of all those factors, Mm. It's, 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 it's an immediate discord. I don't even feel bad anymore. I don't even feel bad anymore. Um, cause I actually sit on, on committees and everyone laughs at me when I say like, I'm right. 90%. I was like, no, I didn't, understand <laughs> something. I didn't actually understand something. And I didn't want to laugh. I was like, guys, I'm actually not afraid to tell you that I don't understand. <laughs> if I don't understand, because you'd have to think, I think any person who's professional has a degree of understanding. If you cannot, someone cannot explain to something me where I can get the concept, not the detail. Mm. Keyword concept, because you'll never know a business better than the entrepreneur. I fundamentally believe that yeah. there's, there's no way. But if I don't understand the the, the factors, uh, it's, it's okay. I walk away. Let's walk away. So I still don't regret investing in Bitcoin. I sometimes do though. I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, to make you laugh, I have a mate of mine who has a Bitcoin wallet and doesn't know the password and is sitting on money. Hey, look, I think the amount of lost Bitcoin, I know it's it's real. Like, I mean, those things are like, like, hey, it's a problem. It's a problem. So now that you are here, so let's just talk about your funding rounds. I think you had your first major one in 2020 with Microsoft. What were your lessons there? And how did you apply them in this funding round, the unicorn one? Yeah, well, I mean, like, it's very much the same. And I think even like, so look, after Y Combinator, we did like a small safe as well. Um, again, but I mean, the, and we had some rounds there, this is our Series D. But I think ultimately the principles remain the same, actually. Look, obviously funding rounds serve different purposes. I would argue like seed Series A, the key thing is about, you know, getting product market fit and, you know, that I think everything thereafter, B, C, D, everything else is around accelerating that growth. Because you know your unit economics are good, you know you've got your product market fit and all that good stuff. Um, and so ultimately it's about, but still the principle remains the same. I'm saying, like, look, ultimately money is green. Anyone can give you money. It's saying, what value does an investor bring beyond just the capital? And so for us, the same way, you know, it's hard to kick someone off your cap table. You have to be very intentional. Same way you, you're looking for co-founders or or even like, you know, looking for romantic relationships, wives, husbands, that kind of stuff. You have to be very intentional about what you what you want and who you want to target. I mean, like, you know, look, it's been a humbling journey for us where, you know, early on you'd speak to you take a hundred investor meetings, meet a hundred investors, call, call them to get only two investors in the end. And unfortunate now, given the traction and the growth and the scale we've had in the business where, you know, there are investors who are reaching out to us consistently to invest in the business and like it's different and rounds with quicker, it's more direct conversations. And because me often I find that on the fundraising cycle can also distract from you building your business. Um, and so it's just making sure that you don't, you know, over, uh, you're very focused on that journey. I think the lessons learned for us has been one, you know, having a clear sense of why you're raising the money. You know, I think it's important if you can articulate why you're raising the money, like, and often early on, it's, for example, early on, it's a function of, you know, raising the money because we see this phenomenal market opportunity and we are the, and why are we the team to execute it because of one, two, three, four, five. And why is now the time because of ABC and, 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 and finally, like, you know, and this is why our approach to capturing this opportunity makes sense. And so early on, those are the kind of conversations you're having. But I think that's true every single phase of growth. So, for example, now we're scaling the business, you know, doing very phenomenal things. And the question is, you know, why is now the time? Why is this the market opportunity for us to get that level of investment and be able to scale it through? How are we going to spend that money and why are we the team given our experience and exposure to the space? And so I think, again, um, you know, you know, SoftBank and other investors in this round, you know, Salesforce Ventures, Atrium, and others, um, 
are, are are very known for you know backing people who have the ability to win at a global scale to be global winners. And so given the platform we've created in the business, we've shown that we are able to win in very specific geographies and there's a global opportunity. And it's about saying how to accelerate that growth. And so to your question around what is it that, you know, we learned from previous rounds, it's again, honing the skill of being able to articulate why you want the money, where it's going to go, what the opportunity is and what their role in that journey looks like, given the explosion. I mean, you know, from SoftBank, you know, backing Clara, Etoro, Uber, we work very large organizations and supporting them going global. Um, you know, you're getting more than just the money and the bank in terms of that exposure and doing that. And so uh, I think for us, it's just again, whether you're fundraising a seed round, an angel round, or IPOing, I think it very much comes down to the same principles. Hmm. No, I, I fundamentally agree. So we're nearing the end of our conversation now. What do you think have been your biggest lessons, your biggest lessons, I think in this, um, we can't not talk about the pandemic. Remember <laughs> the panorama, the Panasonic. What do you think no, some of your biggest lessons have been? You know, it's almost I think lessons or validations. I think you're always an firm believer that people make or break a business. I think whether you're manufacturing, whether you're in a services business, you know, people will make or break a business. I think just realizing that, you know, people are your one's most important asset. And I think during the pandemic more so just caring for the people and also remembering that they're human, right? The same if you're a CEO and, you know, you're nervous, you're uncertain about what's going to happen next. Think about the employee um, who doesn't even have the control of the agency to, to determine their fate. And I think it's about, again, not forgetting the people. And I think just the importance of self-care and mental health. I think, you know, as an ex- as a manager, as an executive, as a CEO, as a founder, I think, you know, by taking care of yourself, you're actually taking care of your team. I think it discounts just the, the, the importance of that mental health and I think important self, self-care in that person. I think the pandemic definitely showed the importance of doing that. But I think even more broadly, I think in thinking about the journey, you know, ultimately, if you want to, you know, build up, you know, the limitation on the size of your business in terms of valuation or the, the growth you will have is a function of the problem you're solving. And so if you are solving a large problem that will, you'll be able to, if you execute well, um, to your point on execution earlier, be able to capture the value and create the value or recreate value and then capture the value. And so that's a big learning because I think, you know, often whether I say, look, whether you're a JSS CEO, whether you're running a Spaza store, business is hard. You're going to have the same stresses. You have the same hours in a day. So my logic is always if you want to have an impact, do something at big scale and just, you know, go bigger because it will be the same amount of effort. Um, and I think for me, to the point, you know, the final piece around, you know, you know, being, you know, you know, being part of the communities we're part of, you know, with Alan Gray, you know, good in good, good education and so forth. I think there's always that risk of, and someone told this to me once, it's a gentleman, probably one of the wealthiest guys in Canada. Um, he was telling me, he's, you know, met him at Oxford, he was a Rhodes Scholar as well. And he was saying like, you know, sometimes, you know, you may be too educated to be successful. Because sometimes to your point, I mean, it's an educated person, we're not the guy to take a business from one to 10. Maybe the guy to take it from 10 to 1,000. And so it's also important to know your strengths, but also not be too pedantic on trying to get things to perfection. And so I'm a firm believer that, like, have a bias to action in everything that you do. And ultimately, done is better than perfect, which I think was a tough thing for me to, to early on in the business where you come from a wrong way, you know, management consulting. I mean, even though many of my slides ended up in the backup or the graveyard, as they're called, I, I think I was fairly immaculate in the work that I produced. And so just the importance of, you know, trying to focus on the main thing and also on that execution point. And I think that's a key learning. So for me, to the point, I think one, learning around the importance of self-care and how as a manager by looking after yourself, you look after your team. I think two, again, just, you know, the impact you want to have as a function of the problem you're trying to solve. And so making sure that, you know, if you're going to do something big, you might as well, you know, really give it horns. And I think the final one, just more so around execution, having a bias towards action. I'm anything that you do. Mm. 
That's actually quite apparent. Bias towards action. I'm actually going to steal that. I'm going to steal that copyright. So what's next? So what's next? I think, so you're now a unicorn. Are we booking a flight to New York? Are we doing that? Are we booking? Are we, are we ringing the bell at the NASDAQ? Are we, <laughs> tell me when to book the flight. That's all I need to know. <laughs> Be ready. Passports. Oh, we are vaccinated. Bay. I am there. <laughs> Well, look, I think like, look, I mean, ultimately through this round, I think we've got a good amount of capital to, to accelerate the next phase of our growth. And so from that perspective, it really is head down in execution. And I think, look, this is really day one of the next phase of our growth. I think, you know, internally we say that, you know, we want to reach our vision to reach a billion users um, globally or learners globally. The right is, so this last month we announced that we um, have 3.5 million learners active in the system. Um, and so the reality there is that we've got a long way to go on that journey. Um, and so it's really just keeping the head down and executing. Um, but you know, for ringing bells, I'll let you know. Um, for, now, for now, we'll solve other things. Uh, thank you. I actually like that. Don't worry. New York, I'm ready. NASDAQ, I'm ready. <laughs> I am. I just want you to know that I'm ready. I'm very, very, very excited. Thank you so much for chatting with me and being the first male. I will take... I will add more men, just every now and then sprinkle for representation, for representation purposes. But I thank you so much for sharing. I think your story is so phenomenal and it has been an honor and a pleasure to be part of the people watching you do this. I am incredibly proud of you. I am in awe. I think you really have surpassed what I thought you would do. I thought you were brilliant already, but somehow, <laughs> I don't know why, extra, you just went <laughs> extra. No, 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 no. <laughs> Thank you much. I mean, like, you know, both as a friend and a colleague in the space, I think you're doing some great work in the ecosystem. So, I mean, we've all got our work, our work cut out for us, but no, thank you for the opportunity. I think to, I think one, share our journey. I think you're also for important facilitating important conversations in this ecosystem. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. I think there's a, I think for me, uh, one of the things that I think that is so remarkable about you is the fact that you chose to come back home. <laughs> my, my late nights with the times once told me sometimes like, hey, it should just be in the U S now as opposed to staying awake until midnight, but no, definitely. And I'm glad I did. No, Cause I think, I think, yeah. I think Southie has potential. Southie, we have potential. I think that the things that are, I think we have the South, you're, we have the potential to be a global players in many things. And I think tech, because the entrance point for me, entrance point and ability is there. It just requires resourcing. That is mm. what it requires. You know, I, 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 and, and so I've worked in, I've probably been to over 40 countries and worked in probably about 20 of them. And like, literally, I still believe that our best export of South Africa is our people, sadly. So, I mean, the just the competence of South Africans, both locally and abroad. I mean, like, so to your point, I mean, we've got the, we've got the pieces, we've got the Lego blocks. Yeah, it just requires resourcing. I, I think it, it just requires resourcing. And I've always said, no, Southie, like we do, we, we really, really do. I, I, every time I interact with other people, I realize, no, people still have, stuff can work. I'm sorry. Other people, other people, it will shock you. It will shock you. It literally will. You're literally, yeah. But yeah, that's another conversation, <laughs> you know, <laughs> life will expose you to many people. But anyway, thank you so much, Melvin. Thank you for having me for the conversation. Pleasure. Yeah. Uh-huh.